Hello and welcome back to The Bunker with me, Andrew Harrison. Take a look outside your window, you won't be seeing the outside world for a while. Lockdown is looming again, and like all sequels, with the exception of Aliens and The Empire Strikes Back, it's unlikely to be as good or as successful as the original. With Covid cases rising, has the government comprehensively blown its pandemic response? And how will Britain react to an indoors autumn? Plus, a scathing report by the Public Accounts Committee concludes that Home Office immigration policies were drawn up on anecdote, assumption and prejudice rather than evidence. Will we ever be able to stop immigration enforcement from being the nastiest arm of government? And, back my snitch up, would you dob in your neighbours for breaking the rule of six like Pretty Patel once? All this and more in today's Bunker. Welcome back to The Bunker. Don't forget the next Bunker versus Romaniacs live Zoom is this coming Thursday at 8pm. It's exclusive to Patreon backers and there's a Q&A at the end. So search Patreon Bunker to sign up and ask your questions for our panel, which will include Dorian Linsky and two of today's panellists, Alex Andreo and Naomi Smith. Naomi, hello. Hello. What did you make of Keir Starmer's speech yesterday at Labour's virtual conference? Massive attack on Johnson for competence. What's been to be the best country to grow up in and the best country to grow old in? Effective relaunch? Um, it was a good speech. There were bits of it that I would have edited differently, I think. Um, <laughs> it felt to me like it was a speech that was written by somebody who was trying to draw on lots of the speeches they've enjoyed in the past. You know, there were little elements of like Martin Luther King speeches in there and things like that. But it, it, it almost felt to me as if the writer had said, okay, what do I want this speech to do? Oh, I want it to make people trust us so I'm going to write you should trust us or you can trust us in in the speech so it it was good it was definitely good I wouldn't say it was great but it was good and I think on on the point that you make about you know the patriotism wanting to grow up in the best country grow old in the best country etc he can't just say it right he needs to engage in what it means to be British he needs to define it in a progressive way Um, and of course we know that that will need to be constantly nurtured can't just sort of say it and abandon it because the country needs it and we need progressives making the patriotic case for what Britishness means does it mean conservatism the class system echoes of empire as our government likes to tell us it means or a country that helped to create international organizations that champion scientific advancement and you know respect for human rights and embraces diversity Um, and and we know that you know Justin Trudeau in Canada is constantly reaffirming that you know linguistic and racial diversity is all part of being Canadian and we're going to need that here to win the battle so I think it was very very good but I think he needs to define it rather than just say it Um, and I also my other sort of slight critique of it I suppose would be to say that um, he really went for Johnson but I think he needs to go for the whole government because Johnson may well not be fighting the next election and he needs to help toxify the whole damned project not just the big blonde buffoon. I did like it when he said the next Labour manifesto won't sound like anything you've heard before. It will sound like the future arriving. I'm like, wow, that's some set the controls to the heart of the sun science fiction excitement going on. I'm, like, I'm, I'm very here for this, as the young people say. Um, he did say, by the way, Naomi, uh, leave versus remain is over. The Brexit debate is over and done. How did you feel about that? Um, well, I'm afraid that, you know, he's just wrong on that point because the, the leave remain debate is very, very far from over. Um, last year, when we were trying to get another vote on the 2016 referendum, you know, our mantra was to the country that was very sick and tired of talking about Brexit. The only way to stop talking about Brexit is to stop Brexit. And we failed on that front, you know, in in no small part, thanks to the Lib Dems and Labour and others that went for the election last year. And so now we're going to get 
a Brexit that almost no one wants, that's going to cause enormous economic harm. And that will mean we have to talk about our relationship with Europe for a very, very long time to come. So nice words from him, but it's simply not true. Also with us, as I mentioned, it's Alex Andreo. Alex, the major event since we were last here was the death of Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg at 87, mm. followed immediately by Mitch McConnell saying they're going to demand a vote on Trump's nomination in direct contradiction of what they said to Obama of Merrick Garland. How much of a turning point is this for America? How, how big are the stakes here? The loss of RBG is huge. Uh, and that's not that's not just because of the politics of the day, not just because she was a progressive, not just because she was a woman on the Supreme Court, but because she was one of the finest legal minds of our generation. I cannot overemphasize the the extraordinary quality of the reasoning in her judgments. Um, Trump, of course, explicitly asked the Senate not to approve Obama's pick in his last year. And Senator Lindsey Graham famously said on the record that if he tried to do the same, you can use his words against him. So I think we'll see a lot more of that. Packing the Supreme Court and lower courts with conservative justices is shaping up to be pretty much the lasting achievement of Trump's presidency. And one Trump insider was said to have texted a journalist friend with the words, he's such a lucky motherfucker that uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg should die at this point in this electoral electoral cycle. Horrible though it is to contemplate, is this actually a bonus for Trump in that it takes the spotlight off his failure on COVID? I take comfort from the fact that according to most experts, uh, uh, there is no upper limit to the number, only a sort of loose convention of judges, I mean. So if the general view, view was that he was overly activist and overreached. He makes space for a democratic administration to be equally permissive when they get in and pack the courts with more judges. But in any case, I'm not sure he will want to appoint another one. It's a huge pull factor in the election. What he wants is to try to appoint someone, Democrats to resist it, so he can go to his base and say, vote for me and you get another judge. Otherwise, they're coming for your guns and fetuses. Good band, that. Um, so, so he will choose, I think, the most controversial person possible. I'm sure we'll be discussing that at further length as the autumn wears on. We're delighted to announce we have a new regular on the bunker. Woo-hoo! Writer, whoop, whoop. Yes, confetti explodes. Writer, broadcaster, campaigns manager, the Joint Council for the Welfare of Immigrants and star turn on Romaniacs and the Bunker. Minnie Rahman is joining the team. Welcome to the Bunker, Minnie Rahman. Oh, thanks for having me. I'm really pleased to join you all. Well, glad to have you here. Alex and Naomi are now going to steal your dinner money. Um, <laughs> there is too much news right now. And one thing that flew under the radar this week was the end of rail franchising. After 25 years of total confusion and overflowing toilets on the Virgin Trains Pendolino, Grant Shapp says the pandemic has proved that franchising is no longer working. Did it ever work? Were you a, were you a train sufferer? I am a train sufferer. It obviously didn't work. You know, this is the government itself admitting that privatisation hasn't worked. And I think, you know, anyone who has used a train in the last 25 25 years knows that it hasn't worked for passengers. You know, you take one look at ticket prices here and compare that with EU countries. and, And it's obvious that passengers have been ripped off. And then if you add on top of that, numerous delays on certain lines, poor quality of train services and and other such things. You know, I think the pandemic just sped up what was inevitable because it was clearly an unsustainable situation for passengers. Yeah, it's not actually nationalisation though, is it? I mean, the government will be still continue to pay private entities to provide rail services. 
and it's been described as the worst of both worlds. But do you think this is possibly the thin end of a wedge that could bring back publicly owned railways? That could that could make that a consensus policy rather than a uh, a fringe one? Yeah, I would hope so. You know, as you say, this isn't nationalisation by any means, and these agreements that the you know with the government have just sort of papered over the cracks instead of really resolving the problems. And you know, you still got taxpayers paying through the nose for private rail companies to run the network and and profit from it. So you know, I think we have to get to a point where it's passengers before profit, and the only way to do that is for public ownership to be in place. So I, I hope that this is the beginning of that journey. Following a sharp rise in COVID-19 cases across Britain over the last few days, a new phase of lockdown is beginning to look inevitable. On Sunday, Boris Johnson declared that it would be inevitable that we'd see a second wave, not his fault at all. And Professor Neil Ferguson, the man behind the first lockdown back in March, called on ministers to act sooner rather than later. On Monday, the government's chief scientific advisor, Sir Patrick Vallant, warned of 50,000 cases per day in October if the numbers continued as they are. And just before we began recording this podcast, Boris Johnson made his announcements in the Commons of further tightening of restrictions. Naomi, it was a bit rich of Johnson to tell the Commons that a stitch in time saves nine after the government has effectively squandered the summer. What did you make of the, the new set of restrictions? You get work from home is encouraged again. Pubs are shutting at 10 o'clock. <laughs> Face masks in shops and taxis. What did you make of it? I make of it that voters are going to get incredibly impatient. Uh, they're getting very tired uh, of mixed messages. Um, and we're bored with being blamed. Uh, bored with being blamed for you know the press economy collapsing and not propping up the transport system. And then two weeks later being blamed for a huge rice in cases and like just like Brexit it's everyone's fault but the government's it's this divide and conquer approach uh, that they take to everything I just I keep coming back to this irony that this is a government of people who totally fetishize the second world war and who long to own the brand of Winston Churchill and then you know conveniently here comes along an actual national emergency that requires actual rationing of, you know, food and goods and also, you know, rationing who you're allowed to meet and mix with. And they're found completely wanting. Um, you know, they appropriate the spirit and glory of World War II for their own ends, but without so much as a vague notion of how to handle it. Now their teenage wet dreamers finally become a reality. So, um, you know, I, I think it's it's exasperating for all concern, but quite clearly necessary because cases are rising again. We can see every other country that's a couple of weeks ahead of us also have the hospital spikes, also have the deaths, particularly from older people. We are not exceptional. Britain is not an exceptionalist uh, country as much as our government would like to claim that it is. Um, and I think people are getting particularly fed up of it because you know we're being expected to abide by the law when this government clearly flouts it and breaks it when it wants to. Apparently, the new restrictions will be in place. This is something that's very nearly slipped under the radar. The restrictions will stay in place for six months. So that's Christmas gone, isn't it? Do you think that, okay, this is not going to be a total lockdown last time, but it is a significant tightening of restrictions. It will not be the same. There won't be that sort of novelty and weird blitz spirit that, you know, applause to the NHS that, that happened last time. Do you think Britain will wear it? It may not be a full lockdown yet, but we may have to have that. Um, mm. It's not obvious that this will be sufficient. You know, on the one hand, Johnson's got Patel and Sharma and Sunak saying, don't go into a lockdown, don't curtail freedoms, we've got to keep business open and all the rest of it. And then on the other side, he's got Hancock and Gove saying, no, 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 you must, you must. Up in Scotland, it's sounding like Nicola Sturgeon might go for this circuit break um, approach where you have a full lockdown 
down for a fortnight uh, to to try and get your R back under control. And so you, you have more of an accelerate break approach. And that, that may be something that then England has to emulate because it proves more successful. So while this might last for six months, I don't know that these measures alone will be what we have for six months. They may be insufficient. You know, there's lots of memes on the internet today about how here's the coronavirus turning up to find the pub shot at 10 p.m. You know, it's just <laughs> a f- effing nonsense that, 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 that uh, you know, it's not you know, virulent and around us at all times and isn't abiding by uh, the same rules that, that we are. So, A, I don't know that this is it, um, I think. Of course, we are going to be in some kind of constant state of uh, vigilance and and restriction until there is any kind of a cure or vaccine, Uh, but it may not be this insufficient. I also think that there's something quite interesting about like the the timing of it, because the first lockdown, of course, came at the end of the winter and the start of the spring. But by the summer, summer, we were more or less out of it. You know, we were allowed to go and get our roots done at the hairdressers by July and people could go and have lovely barbecues and mix again with friends and family and loved ones. And the winter lockdown is going to come off the back of a taste of freedom that we had over the summer months of seeing everyone that we love. And I think taking that away from people, especially when the government itself flouts the law so frequently, is going to make it tougher for for the average Brit to want to comply with this. Minnie, do you think the government is regressing its orders to, you know, get back to work, peasants, to save this pret sandwich? Do you think that has proved to be bad advice? Well, I think it definitely has proved to be bad advice. And I really hope that they they are regretting it. You know, they're having to backtrack Michael Gove saying that everyone needs to work from home again. And, you know, when you've got the SAGE reports out also saying that a 10pm curfew isn't going to be enough, you would you would hope that they're sort of regretting everything that they've done so far in the sense that, that people really need clarity and consistency from the government and there hasn't been any. And that is the thing that is leading to this rise in cases and rise in the number of people going into hospital you know every school and workplace is implementing different measures because there hasn't been any clarity and you know I think people aren't idiots Uh, people know the risks of coronavirus and they don't want it to continue to spread but if they don't have that clarity and certainty then the government isn't going to be able to control how the population responds to anything and they're not going to be able to control how they respond to something like a two-week lockdown or circuit break because how do you control people's behaviour when everything is is so erratic? When we had that first lockdown, we had a bit of that clarity. You know, it was a you could see, okay, the entire country is doing the same thing. My neighbours are doing the same thing. We did sort of know what we could and, and couldn't do. But the government has also damaged that trust massively that they were just clinging on to at the beginning when we went into the first lockdown. You know, you've got all these news stories of Boris Johnson and his weird secret holidays to Italy and then the Dominic Cummings effect. People have sort of given up. And so if they want to get us through some kind of second lockdown or circuit breaker, they have to seem like they know what they're doing, which they currently don't. Do we know he actually went to Italy? We don't know that, do we? It was kind of strange, unless it's a strange kind of Boris lookalike on a Ryanair plane. It's such yeah, a, <laughs> that's a whole wormhole in its own right, isn't it? The concentration on the pubs seems very odd in that, okay, I get the idea that an hour of drinking at the end of the night is possibly where most mingling, copyright Pretty Patel, takes place. But, you know, is it more a case of finding something where you can pin the blame on partying young people to distract from the the huge unspoken thing at the centre of this, which is that still track and trace does not work. After six months, we don't have a, a working track and trace, but you can at least point to the pubs and go, look, it's full of people rubbing shoulders. 
Yeah, definitely. And I also just don't understand how this 10pm curfew will work. Because again, you have to think about people's behaviour and how that will be impacted by things like a curfew. And, and and like Naomi said, there's already been various memes going around on the internet. Well, that just means I have to start drinking earlier and harder. So, you know, the government needs to really get their track and trace system they, you know, they've had six months to get this system right and they haven't and part of that is to do with the way they've gone about it privatizing it they could have invested in more local authorities to be able to implement it or given more money to the NHS but they've taken the wrong route with all of this stuff and if they haven't got that right they're not going to be able to get control of this situation properly. Alex I mean this has been a real well it's been a real bone of contention with plenty of backbench conservatives who are kind of reflexively concerned about about tighter lockdown measures almost on principle you know the the kind of libertarian wing of the conservative party is really opposed opposed to any kind of restriction of of, of freedom of movement but that you know they t- to do anything to peg the government back on this they they will need the support of labor mps and keir starmer's approach has been to support the government's moves i mean even today responding to johnson he, he again supported the tightening of these restrictions he said he's been attacking johnson on competence is, is this good politics when Johnson seems kind of impervious on competence, even among his own base? I mean, they sort of don't mind how badly he's doing. I don't think there's any other option for the opposition, to be honest. I mean, he's made it very clear that he will support the measures because it's impossible not to. There's a huge asymmetry of information. Quite simply, nobody sees the full data the government sees. And so to resist them is to suggest you know better when manifestly you don't. Mm. So no one has access to the same pool of advice and the same detailed data that the government does. And I don't think there's any political scope for an opposition to say, we don't agree with this. I yes. mean, they can, they, can, they can trim around the edges and say, maybe you should be doing this sooner. We don't know how this will work in practice, stuff like that. By, by the way, not like me to defend the government, but the pub curfew rule. I mean, I think the root of it may be in the fact that most pubs operate both as boozers and eateries. And I think that the government is trying to target the the first function while leaving the second one intact because it's where they make a lot of their money. And, mm. and since most pubs stop serving food around 9 30, 10 o'clock, I think that's what they're going for. They're going in with 10 p.m. to try and preserve the bit where you go and sit down in the pub and have a dinner, but cut out the bit where you just stand there and drink. And of course, many, many places close a lot later than 11. So they're also targeting clubs that open around 10 for the most part. Yeah, I mean, well, clubs are pretty much out of the picture and have been for mm. ages. It certainly is the case that nothing seems to annoy Boris Johnson as much as when uh, Keir Starmer is agreeing with him. He was exceptionally <laughs> petulant today uh, when Starmer said, I support your moves. He could, it's the worst thing he could possibly hear. I mean, it has become an absolute article of faith that government messaging on COVID has been all over the place. Yeah. Do we think they've got any better at it? Because the restrictions become more granular. They're now based on area. They're now based on time of day. Uh, we, we listened today, the uh, Prime Minister saying that the rule of six is being tightened and modified. And I couldn't understand how. It was very, very opaque. I think this is stage one of what's happening, to be honest. I think th- their first step is to say, we're giving you one last chance to behave well, and if you don't, we're going to have to go in harder. And I think in about a week, 
they will say, we gave you one last chance, but everyone was out behaving badly last weekend, so now we're going to have to lock down harder. So so they're basically shifting the blame uh, for the full lockdown onto the public. I think that's the essence of the move. Many. In, in the initial phase of lockdown, we saw the devolved nations taking a very different line to England. Since then, they've kind of taken a leading line, and often the government has, has, has found itself following the President of the United Kingdom, Nicola Sturgeon, in her moves. Um, Sadiq Khan has been mentioned, mentioned the prospect of, of London sort of attempting to do it, its own thing. Are we, are we seeing further sort of regional devolution uh, you know, happening of its own accord as the government fails to kind of make its case to the regions and to the cities. Yeah, I think there is a lot of leadership coming out of the different regions. You know, someone who is now in the West Midlands, which is um, Birmingham, has obviously gone down into a slightly harder lockdown than the rest of the country. And there's definitely leadership coming out, disagreeing with the government and saying, what they need from the government, which is more resources and more clarity. And I think just politically, this is weakening trust in Boris Johnson's administration at a time when the public really does need to feel like they can trust the government. And, you know, Nicola Sturgeon has obviously come off as far more competent and clear and just better at comms, which is so important. And I think a lot of people in England are feeling like they've been left with a bumbling prime minister who's sort of been absent and is famous for telling us all to shake hands with coronavirus patients. <laughs> so, you know, I think politically uh, it, it, what it means for Boris Johnson is that, that a lot of the country is losing faith and confidence in him and and has been for a really long time. And, and I can't see how he will be able to sustain a leadership um, until the next general election. Last week's report by the Public Accounts Committee concluded that immigration policies drawn up by the Home Office were based on anecdote, assumption and prejudice instead of evidence. The committee said the department was unaware of the damage caused by policy failures on both the illegal and migrant populations and that Home Office officials had no idea what its £400 million annual spending on immigration enforcement actually achieves. Minnie, you described the report as a very accurate picture of a clueless, careless and cold-hearted Home Office What's it going to take to change the nature of the department, or is this kind of is this kind of baked into the architecture of the Home Office? Yeah, I mean, look, this report was really strong, and, and it was a good report in many ways. But quite honestly, it isn't the first parliamentary report that has told us how utterly incompetent the Home Office is. And you know, you've got a series of reviews and reports from from the Foreign Affairs Select Committee, the Home Affairs Select Committee, the Chief Inspector of Borders, the Windrush Lessons Learned Review. You know, all of these reports have criticised the government numerous times on, on different areas of migration policy, and pretty much all of them say that the Home Office needs to, to change urgently. I honestly don't think anyone has had anything positive to say about the Home Office Um well, probably ever, but definitely not recently. So, you know, what really needs to take place is a really fundamental reform at the heart of the Home Office. Those were the recommendations in the Windrush Lessons Learned review. And you've got the government sort of, uh, you know, saying that they're going to implement all of these lessons and they're really going to learn from them, whilst at the same time continuing the same pattern of behaviour over and over again. You know, they're just paying lip service essentially to those reports. So, it's going to take a lot of work for both the politics and the Home Office to, to fundamentally change. The, the Home Office, and particularly the immigration function, has kind of reveled in being the the nasty arm of government. And uh, certainly where I live in, in, in Hackney in London, the parking of immigration enforcement vans with immigration 
enforcement on the side in huge black letters on main roads. It's, it's almost as if, you know, that I don't know whether the message is being sent to the people in the community where I live or, you know, to people who are, you know, potential conservative voters who want to have this kind of, get, you know, get almost this kind of vicarious thrill out of, this, out of a sense of crisis. But I certainly don't remember immigration enforcement in block capital letters being a thing before Theresa May. Yeah, this, you know, this isn't necessarily a new thing, but it does go back to Theresa May and her infamous uh, go home vans. There's definitely been an increase of sort of visible immigration enforcement. And, you know, you've got a lot of collaboration now since the implementation of the hostile environment of immigration enforcement with sort of workplaces and community centres, including religious institutions. And, you know, like a couple of years ago, you had Byron Burgers um, essentially doing a sting operation with the Home Office, which they did, by the way, because they were actually exploiting migrant workers illegally and, and didn't want to get a fine. So they collaborated with the Home Office to arrest the people they were exploiting. So so, you know, I do think this this is an increasing trend of trying to appear like they're visibly acting on migration and to to show the sort of hostile face of the Home Office to the public. And I think I think you're right. You know, migration is often used as a political distraction. The government loves to ramp up anti-migrant rhetoric at times of crises. And we saw that just a few weeks ago with with Calais crossings. And I, I think it is likely that we'll see more of this behaviour as we enter into a recession and the government looks to blame someone for the problems that are caused by an economic crisis. The Public Accounts Committee report also highlighted a lack of diversity at senior levels in the Home Office. Only one member of its executive committee came from a black, Asian or minority ethnic background. Can you run a migration, immigration function of the government if you haven't got anybody from those communities as part of it? Yeah, I, I find this question really tricky because... Obviously, diversity in employment is is really important and it's important to have people in the civil service who understand different cultures and practices and can relate to the experiences of people of colour, especially when it comes to to racial discrimination. But I, I think at the end of the day, it doesn't make a difference if the policies the civil servants are being asked to implement have been proven to cause racial discrimination and are solely based on this idea that migrants are bad and awful. You know, it hasn't helped migration policy to have Pretty Patel as, as Home Secretary, let's put it that way. You know, the politics is just as important uh, as, as the diversity in the Home Office. Alex, it was a scathing report. Um, how can a government department have no idea what its spending achieves? I mean, I thought we were on results-based management these days. <laughs> Very easily, especially when you keep changing the people at the top to put in your political appointees, you give them conflicting uh, targets uh, and you shuffle senior staff around and secondment to deal with Brexit this month and COVID the next, I'm afraid. So uh, are we effectively seeing the playing out of uh, we don't like experts in uh, internally in government as well as externally? No, I think it. I I don't think it's even that uh, a sort of targeted and rational. I think it's a. It's basically a measure of the amount of churn there has been in the civil service, the huge amount of people who are out uh, uh, at the moment on stress-related stuff. I, I was seeing some really high figures recently from the. Uh, civil service union um, so I, I, I just think there there's a brain drain they lose mm. their best people because they get pinched 
for bottleneck projects like uh, Brexit and COVID. Uh, and they lose loads of people uh, at the top because they won't do as they're told because they see themselves as independent. And so, you know, what they're left with is necessarily of mediocre quality. The Home Office has just uh, announced that it's going to lift a ban on evictions of asylum seekers from properties. This could mean that thousands of asylum seekers could end up homeless. This does not seem like a wise thing to do in the middle of a pandemic. And it seems rather odd, given that one of the first things we did when the pandemic appeared was to instantly and quickly solve homelessness. Why are they doing this now? Uh, Man, I genuinely have no idea. Maybe Minnie can help out with that. It's just such an irrational policy because you think if if they've exhausted their appeals and they've been refused um, status, then what you need to do as the Home Office is actually deport them rather than evict them from the hotel they're staying in. So so they end up in the street and actually actively encourage them to be lost to the system. So I really don't understand it. Also, more than half of the people being put up in hotels and stuff like that, they're paid by local authorities. And there's no clarity as to whether this kind of diktat will apply to local authorities paying for people to be housed. So I I genuinely, this bit of the policy left me dumbfounded. Minnie, can you clarify that at all? Are you less dumbfounded? (laughs) No, I think it's quite typical of the Home Office. You know, their their policies often make absolutely no sense and are detrimental to the people that they are imposing them on. Um, We always knew that there was going to put come a point in the pandemic where they were going to have to start enforcement again and this appears to be the beginning of, of that process and we also know that in the last few weeks they have been focusing on asylum seekers and and borders again and safe and legal routes in the sense that they they would like to crack down on those routes of entry and appear like they're doing something on migration and and as they realize that they can't control the situation with um, Brexit. So, you know, there isn't any rationale to it apart from they want to appear like they're doing something. And and it's quite right, you know, this this is just as we're entering a second wave, this is going to be really, really detrimental to people who are made homeless. And the whole hostile environment is founded around uh, you know, this illegal population or people who are undocumented and, and trying to crack down on them. But that report clearly says that the government doesn't even know where they are. And this kind of policy is the reason why. No, me, uh, no Conservative politician ever failed to prosper by not being horrible to uh, immigrants and being, mm-hmm. being tough on this. Immigrants have been a punch bag in this country for decades. Are we ever going to change that? Is it ever going to be something that can be, you know, addressed square on and dealt with? Um, well, I th- it has to be, and I don't think any listener that's heard me on this show or others will be surprised to hear me say one word, which is Canada. Um, and we only need to look for Canada to Canada for examples of, of how progressives can do this well. Um, we need to plan properly for population growth. We need to help immigrants integrate rather than abandon them. We've got to promote interculturalism. Um, and a really key way of that is through the education system. Uh, we need to fight for the identity of the UK as a diverse place. And that means political leaders being proud of our diversity and, and multicultural society and to talk up the benefits of immigration and how it enriches uh, rather than erodes the fabric of our society. And some do try to do it. And there's this lovely anecdote from um, 
dear old Anna Subri. Do you remember her? Oh, yes. We talked about her a lot last year. Um, she she said that when she would have constituency surgeries and people would come along and say, oh, you've got to deal with all these illegal immigrants, she would immediately whip out her notepad and pen and say, right, I mean, if they're illegal, you've got to tell me, where are they? Where are they? I've got to know. If they're, if they're illegal, they've got to be reported. And, of course, immediately then that would force people to go down the line, oh, okay, no, no, actually, it's just I don't like Polish people uh, mm. would be what would come out of it. But, you know, good on her for tackling it head on. And, and we just need more that are prepared to do it because if we don't, we're just going to get further and further into this incredibly ugly uh, environment that, as we know, damages everything. We'll damage the NHS, damage care sector. You know, we're, we're going to deter Britain from, deter people from coming to Britain who we badly bloody need to come here. Speaking of which, I'm going to let you speak about Brexit for two seconds on the mm. supposedly Brexit-free bunker podcast. The report says that officials at Home Office are unprepared for the challenges of Brexit, mm-hmm. such as cooperation with the EU <laughs> on the return of foreign offenders and illegal immigrants. How is Brexit going to change the nature of the Home Office's work? I mean, look, the structure of the Home Office has changed repeatedly, like each time in a reaction to the previous so-called crisis of the immigration system. Ministers sort of regularly get asked to act as caseworkers and make specific operational decisions in a way that bears absolutely no comparison to other departments. The whole of the Home Office is run on really ancient, creaking information technology systems and paper files. So it, it... it's hard to know how it will adapt, given that it hasn't even successfully managed to adapt to any previous changes. I just think we can probably expect it to be even more of a clusterfuck than than previous ones. And with the exception being that we now don't seem to live in an era where a minister would have to resign uh, over uh, a horrendous cock up at the Home Office, as obviously ha- happened with Amber Rudd in 2018. It's almost impossible to imagine that happening now, isn't it? It seems yeah. like from a different golden age. Alex, finally, before we finish up on this bit, immigration has been an absolute third rail for Labour. Mm. Either you're too soft on it and the red wall goes mad or you're putting out immigration mugs and the Metropolitan Centre-Left go mad. How could how could, and how should Starmer approach this issue? What, what Starmer needs to do, very simply, is reframe the debate away from soft or hard on immigration. You make it about clear transparent and fair rules versus random, obscure and vicious. Everyone aspires to fairness. Redwall voters, metropolitan voters, it's a universal value. So if you frame it this way, this political circle can very easily be squared. And Starmer is an ideal position to do this as a former lawyer and as someone who has set his stall out on you know, the rule of law and and how important it is, he can simply say, I want to address the issue of, say, undocumented migrants for the same reason I want to tackle tax-dodging corporations or rogue landlords or disreputable employers who pay below minimum wage because lawlessness is bad and fairness, clarity and adherence to the rule of law make for a better environment for everyone. So you reframe it away from blaming the tiny numbers of uh, immigrants for, for the problems and saying this is about making the rules clear and fair so that everyone can adhere to them. 
finally, are you listening to this podcast alone? How many people are with you? Do you have a permit to be out? Will we have to report you? Snitching is back. Just hours after she had voted to break international law herself, Home Secretary Priti Patel declared that she would snitch on her own neighbours if they broke coronavirus laws, namely the Rule of Six. Boris Johnson later contradicted her, saying that uh, he urging the public to speak to the rule breakers before informing authorities, and then Dominic Raab contradicted him. Nobody likes a grass, but in these circumstances, is grassing people up the right thing to do? Alex, if you saw your neighbours breaking the lockdown laws, would you be on the hotline? Oh, so much, yes. <laughs> I can't wait. You can't wait. He's on Cannot the phone to the council every five minutes. Environmental health. Seriously, seriously, yeah. I see people on the tube who wear their masks underneath the nose, and I want to pull the emergency brake. It's all I can do to stop. <laughs> <laughs> I am going to be the worst. <laughs> so when's the last time you actually did this? What was Who did you grass up and why? I don't think I've ever grassed anyone up. Um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, this is a public health issue. It's different. Yeah. And and the problem is that it feels different. So it feels different from my neighbours, you know, having a really loud party until sort of six o'clock in the morning, um, which they often do, and I've never called the police on them, because, you know, I think to myself, okay, it's going to be a bad night, I'll sleep, I'll have a nap tomorrow afternoon. But this is a is a matter of life and death. And by following the rules, by wearing my mask correctly, by, by not going out frivolously, I am actually protecting other people. And so when I see them flouting the rules, it feels like a really personal disrespect. It feels like I'm doing my best to protect you, but you're not doing your best to protect me. We need new new uh, words for this, don't we? Because I actually hate the word grass and I hate the word snitch because, you know, they kind of have this sort of ridiculous sort of teenage pretend criminal thing about them. You know, you are absolutely right. It's about attempting to maintain a common approach to this. And if people are, you know, deliberately flouting it, you want a way of, uh, of, of putting a stop to that. Also, let's be honest, you do get a certain thrill out of it, don't you? Why is Boris Johnson then so averse to snitching, or as I call it, reporting miscreants to the relevant authorities? Well, because he's, his entire life he's been the miscreant. Yes. <laughs> so, 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 of course, he's, you know, his entire being is screaming, no, snitching is bad. And uh, I'll speak to my journalist mate to get you beaten up if uh, <laughs> you, you do yeah. snitch on me. Well, it's going to be interesting, isn't it, to see how the various newspaper columnists who attacked the nosy neighbours who couldn't avoid hearing Boris Johnson having a massive row through their thin walls last autumn, how they're going to react to a climate where you are encouraged to report people breaking the rules that they don't like. It's, it's, it rather places these people in a quandary, doesn't it? Well, they don't care. I mean, is there any consistency on any of their front pages on any issue for the last few um, years you know they go from vote for Boris this deal is brilliant to this deal is awful we must stop it in the space of six months the same journalist writing you know sharing the byline and no one yeah. bats an eyelid no but you're going to be calling the authorities if if, if uh, you know Pimlico is rocking with wild parties in the autumn <laughs> yes I, um, if it's uh, it's I, we talked about it last week it's all about proportionality um, you know, if I see seven people going into my neighbor's house, obviously not. But if it's quite clear that they are repeatedly offending with, you know, dozens and dozens of people, yeah, of course I will, uh, for all the all the reasons Alex said. 
I mean, what's the psychology here? Is this is this appealing to kind of middle class curtain twitching little Hitlers or swivel eyed political commissar lefties or both? Are we all a little bit like this? Uh, look, come on, we all we all know a curtain twitcher like Alex, who's just going to love. <laughs> of course, um, uh, and I think the British population are, on average, a lot more authoritarian than. I'm the, the opposite of, of a curtain twitcher. <laughs> <laughs> I'll have you know. I'm always bloody out partying, but the point is, if I can't, neither can you. <laughs> <laughs> Lenny, how about you? Are you going to be dobbing in your neighbours for uh, illicit gatherings of seven and eight? You know, I don't think I will. I think I honestly just don't have time to keep track of who is doing what in my neighbourhood. And, and, you know, I think it's quite difficult to tell what people's social bubble looks like and who lives where. And, you know, I, I get the frustration about, you know, if there's a wild party, what are you going to do then? But quite honestly, I haven't seen anything like that this whole time. And I don't know whether that's just because my neighbourhood is particularly good, but I honestly haven't noticed too much rule breaking in that sense. So I, I can't really see a situation in which I would need to. But what I do think is really bad about this whole whole snitching thing is that I think it's just like classic Pretty Patel in the sense that she's claiming what constitutes being a good citizen is is sort of spying on your neighbours instead of what was happening at the beginning of the pandemic, which was when, you know, you had all these mutual aid groups around and people checking in on your neighbours and supporting each other. And to me, that's what being a good citizen is about. And I think that's the kind of narrative that you need to get us through this pandemic rather than like spy on everyone and that will fix it. It is kind of odd to see an, an entire political kind of worldview that's constructed around Dad's army to turn around and say, be like Warden Hodges, put that light out. Do you know what I mean? He's <laughs> the one everybody hates in Dad's army. He's the one you're not supposed to be like. And now we're, we're encouraged to be like him. I've got to be honest, though. I, I, the thing that I feel robbed of most by the pandemic is my cheap thrill of watching somebody being got for fur dodging on the bus. I used to look at <laughs> sit down, drink it in. You know, they're in the wrong, you're in the right. Absolutely. Inject it into my veins. That's because I am essentially Captain Mannering, really. So we've come to the end of the podcast, which means it's time to ask our panel for their escape routes from politics, the things that refresh their brains and get them away from looking at the headlines. Naomi, what is your deviation from the political universe this week? I mean, look, come on. I work in politics. I do political podcasts. Like, it's it's rare. It's rare that I use downtime to totally switch off from politics, but I do try. This week, um, a little bit of home edit goes a long way. Netflix uh, viewers who have watched the home edit might know what I'm talking about. So I've been clearing out my wardrobe before the charity shops close again because I did a big clear out during lockdown and then realized I had nowhere to take it and it just had to sit in bags, annoying me. Um, So I've been getting out all my autumn and winter bits from storage and look, it always just feels good to get organized. Um, Even if I am completely deluding myself because I'm going to spend the winter in loungewear and slippers because everything is fucking closed. Um, But yeah, yeah. Bit, bit, of, bit of sorting out the old wardrobe for me. Give it at the Mary Kondo. Alex, last week you were talking about doing micro DIY. What you did? What you? What are you using to free your brain at the moment? Well, let me tell you, all that's ground to halt because I've downloaded this game on my phone that is like <laughs> it is like crack. crack in app form. Crack I, for the thumbs. In fact, I feel trepidatious 
passing this on to our listeners, a little bit like those people in Ring that make a copy of the videotape. I think, <laughs> I think it, it can come to no good. But here it goes. The game is called Dig This. Right. And it's the most addictive thing I've ever played. <laughs> what is it? What happens? Just download it. Give us a quick, quick pricing. No, just us- do it. No, no, they need to know what it is. It can't be described. It can't be described. You're trying to dig a path to get a ball from A to B, but it's just extraordinarily addictive. And it was at the end of September when the world of podcasts <laughs> 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 like Alex's stupid video game. Minnie, how about you? Elevate the tone, for God's sake. Well, I was going to say I might have to change mine to Alex's because he sold it for me. Um, but I think, so Shit's Creek won all the Emmys this week. I don't know if any of you have seen it, but it's so good. So I'm going to rewatch that from the beginning because it's just so lighthearted and warm and incredibly sarcastic at the same time. So that's a very good distraction. From uh, the such a good situation. shout. Such a good uh, shout. Andrew, what have you been up to? Mine's telly as well. Uh, it's the new adaptation of Aldous Huxley's Brave New World, which is starting on Sky on, I think, the 2nd of October. Uh, it's got Harry Lloyd in it. Doctor Who nerds will remember him from the Family of Blood. Super, super fun mother of mine. You know, the one where mm. with David Tennant won. Brilliant, brilliant. Absolutely fantastic. And also the guy who ends up with a, uh, a gold wig in Game of Thrones, you may remember. Um, but it's an adaptation of uh, Aldous Huxley's vision of the future where everyone's on drugs. That could never happen. And a society has devolved into a super stratified world of alphas uh, down to epsilons. Again, that could never happen. And it's very interesting that this vision of the future that was written many, many decades ago is quite pertinent to now because uh, you have effectively the the savage land, the people who live outside the perfect world uh, of of soma and permanent sexual uh, excitement that is uh, Aldous Huxley's Brave New World. You look at them and they are actually, it's Trump world. It's very, very Mm -hmm. kind of torn from the headlines right now. Brilliantly put together, um, and I, I recommend it. We're going to be talking about it in great detail on Sister Podcast Big Mouth at the weekend. If you're still listening to podcasts and not playing Alex's video game, <laughs> <laughs> just say like the mix of highbrow and lowbrow advice in this section has really been quite staggering. I don't think we've ever had quite such extremes. What can I say? That's the kind of uh, you know multi-level podcast that we are. And that's the end of this week's bunker. Thank you to our panel, Naomi Smith. Thank you very much, Alex Andreo. Yes, as and making a fantastic debut, I'm sure she will agree that she has justified her selection, Minnie Rahman. Oh, thanks, everyone. We'll be back tomorrow with another Bunker Daily and the full-length show this time next week. Don't forget, you can back us on the crowdfunding platform Patreon and get access to this Thursday's Zoom with Romaniacs. Just say our Twitter or Facebook or search Patreon Bunker Podcast. And if you back us, you get a shout-out on the show. And here are some shout-outs now. Hello and muchas gracias from me to Kathy Brown, John Hames and Kay. And a big virtual hug from me to Christine Banks, Mark Richards and Conrad Lawrence. From me, it's hello to Andrew Martin, Scary Biscuits and Paul Thompson. And a big shout out from me to Ronald Reed, Laura Marcus and Guy Brasher. We'll see you all next time. The Bunker was produced and presented by Andrew Harrison with Alex Andreu, Mimi Smith and Minnie Rahman. The assistant producer was Jacob Archibald, and audio production was by me, Alex Reese. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production. <laughs>